Starting, though, as one of the big questions we've been hearing over and over, and the answer, well, very different depending on who you ask. Talking about the future of policing and what that is going to look like in Surrey, we heard earlier today from the newly elected mayor, Brenda Locke. She talked about the fact that, yes, they are going to keep the RCMP, and she also disputed claims that everyone currently working for the Surrey Police Force will have to get 18 months severance pay. They can work out their 18 months and they will in fact be doing that. We will be saying to uh, to the staff, they can either ladder and become an RCMP member, they can go back to their original uh, jurisdiction or their original agency, or um, they can work out their time. So we will not be paying um, that. They don't have a, a, severing, a severing clause, they have a workout clause. All right, just part of the comments from Surrey Mayor-elect Brenda Locke. Well, joining us now is Wally Opal, a former BC Attorney General and Chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. Thank you so much for being with us. Always good to be with you, Jill. So is this even possible? And I know that question has been put to Mayor-elect Locke and asking what would it look like from what you've seen and as you were part of the transition task force, is it possible at this point to go back and keep the RCMP in Surrey? Well, anything is possible, but it's important to look at the history of how we got got here. I don't want to get into the political stuff that's going on out in Surrey, but your listeners should know that in two thousand. And 18, the city council voted unanimously to establish its own police force. They then had to come up with a plan to satisfy the provincial government, the solicitor general, Mike Farnworth, that it was possible for Surrey to do that. So there's a very elaborate plan to do that, and it requires a lot of high-end work. And so what the um, solicitor general did was he was satisfied that the city of Surrey was in a position to proceed forward. But he said, okay, tell me what you have in plan. How are you going to look after the public safety needs of Surrey? So he appointed a transition team, and I was a chair of it, but we had 12 people, uh, criminologists, senior police officers, human relations people, and various people who were involved. And after four months, we prepared a report. And based on that, the Solicitor General approved the plan to go forward and establish its own police force. And thereafter, a police board was appointed, a police chief was selected, and now they have 275 police officers and something like 350 various other people who are already employed. And they're a functioning police force. So ultimately, it will be up to the Solicitor General to decide whether to approve any future move. Now, the Solicitor General is going to think, how are the needs of Surrey going to be improved by going back to the RCMP? And that will be up to him to decide. But he has the ultimate decision. But it's important to remember here that there are human resource problems, issues here. There are many police officers. All the police officers have come from other police forces where they have gave up their jobs senior police officers from the Mounties and from municipal forces who have given up their job, moved to Surrey with their families, and they're now a part of the new police force, which is actually doing policing on the streets. So those are some of the things that are involved. The other thing the Solicitor General is going to have to think about is that the federal government 
wants to get out of uh, contract policing. And contract policing means that any city or, or uh, municipality can enter into a contract with CMP uh, or any other police or to come in and do their policing for them. And the, the federal government wants to get out of that. So that's the problem that the, prob- the Surrey would be facing and also what the province would be facing, and that is that the time for con- contract policing is really limited and maybe outdated because cities want to have their own police forces and they don't necessarily want to have an outside police force as the RCMP is to do their policing. So those are the, some of the challenges. As I said, uh, it'll be up to ultimately for the Solicitor General to decide uh, how best to proceed. Does it matter how far along in the process things are at this point? Uh, I know uh, the um, the head of the, the Surrey Police Service Board was speaking earlier today and said that they're still uh, looking to get jurisdictional status and not to get into all of the, the legalese of it. But does it matter whether or not that's been granted and how far along in the process it is? Well, it means it's going to be very, very difficult and very, very expensive to go back to the RCMP after all of this has been improved. You know, Surrey went through a lot to get their own police force, and they went back to their own history. You know, they've had the RCMP, who I think have done a very good job over the years, uh, from 1950 onward. But the real reason that Surrey did this is they wanted to control their own policing system. The RCMP is controlled from Ottawa, and uh, so they don't have police boards or police communities uh, committees. And that's why Surrey did this at the time in 2018. So they are, are pretty far along. As I said, that families have moved in. Different people have now signed on to the Surrey thing. There's a collective agreement on top of that. So those are all things that, that uh, would be huge challenges, uh, very expensive, uh, if uh, Surrey decided to go back. And again, I know you said you didn't want to get into the the kind of the political weeds on this. But when we look at the history, Doug McCallum was elected when he ran saying he was going to get rid of the RCMP. And throughout his time as mayor, he repeatedly said, I was elected with a mandate to get rid of the RCMP. Brenda Locke would argue she just got elected because one of her main, if not the main promise of her platform was she was going to keep the RCMP. So when you say that, that residents want their own city force, does it not seem like things are a little bit split in the city of Surrey. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good point. I think what's happened, Jill, is that they all voted unanimously to establish their own police force. Thereafter, political considerations came into into play, and uh, they started talking about costs and all of that. But I would have assumed that city council, when they voted uh, unanimously to to move forward with their own police force, would have thought about the costs that were going to be involved. And uh, yes, it was going to be more expensive, but the RCMP now has a collective agreement, so they would be expensive as well. But again, those are things for, those are political issues. Uh, But I can tell you that at the end of the day, uh, it's uh, Mike Farnworth that's going to have to approve this, and he'll have to do it with the best interests of public safety, 
and all of those things in mind. And what are your thoughts then, given your time with the the Surrey Police Transition Task Force? And I remember being there when Mike Farnworth announced that, yes, Surrey was given the green light to go ahead and establish its own police force. What kind of a timeline do you think we're looking at then if you're saying now Mike Farnworth has to come out and be that deciding voice once again? Well, it'll take an enormous amount of difficulty and lots of legal issues involved. The employment issues and uh, I can see wrongful dismissals and all those kinds of issues coming forward. So those are ultimately things for Surrey to decide and ultimately for the Solicitor General to decide. But it's not going to be easy um, because, uh, you know, this has been going on not since 2018. And, uh, you know, we're, we're four years down the road and the, as I said, the committee that 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 did all of the homework on this uh, was made up of consummate professionals, former police officers and human resources people, criminologists and all these people uh, decided that it would be appropriate. And the province approved that. And uh, they now have police on the on the streets doing actual policing. So that makes it more difficult the further along that we've been. Right. So wouldn't that imply then that Mike Farnworth, it would be better to make a decision as soon as possible? Because every day that goes by, that police service is becoming more and more established. Well, I would think so. But I think Mike would need a lot more um, than than uh, a mayor-elect saying, uh, uh, we're going to go back. I think that he probably would need uh, the some kind of an approval from city council. And I would assume that that they will vote on it, and after the new council has been sworn in. And those are all political political issues, and all I can tell you is that why this decision was made. And it was made with a lot of deliberation in mind, a lot of facts in mind, a lot of evidence there, and it was determined at that time in 2019, when I was a part of the process, that it would be in the best interest of Surrey to have a police board and to have its own police force where they can govern the, uh, the police system with their own priorities in mind. Those were the governing factors in 2019, and they have moved forward in leaps and bounds since that time. So, uh, and again, I say I'm not going to get involved in what happened to the election and, and the political issues that are involved, but there were, there were factual bases, evidentiary bases as to why Surrey decided to do that, and the province approved it based on the evidence that they had before them. So that's where we are. All right. Well, we're going to definitely wait and see what happens next with this. As always, Wally Opal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always good to be with you, Jill. want to look at a study that has just been released and it has to do with screen time specifically screen time when children are recovering from a concussion and joining us to talk more about that is Dr. Noah Silverberg associate professor at the UBC psychology department Dr. Silverberg thank you so much for being with us Thank you for having me. Well, I know we talk about screen time in general, but this is specifically about when a child is recovering from a concussion. And it's it's generally speaking, are you not supposed to kind of limit screens and that kind of staring at screens and that at any stage in life when recovering from a concussion? But what does this talk about specifically for children? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of concern about uh, kids being on screens too much in generally, but after a concussion specifically, just uncertainty as to whether kids really need to stay off screens completely in the early days in order to let their brains heal. So physicians will often recommend out of an abundance of certainty that uh, kids limit or even completely stay off their, their phones, computers, uh, etc. Uh, again, just we, we don't know whether that's necessary for good recovery or, or detrimental. And what is it specifically that the concern that if you are on a screen or, or spending a significant or an amount of time looking at a screen mm-hmm. while you're recovering, what is the issue with that? Well, the theory is that the brain really should be using all of its energy towards healing and not be burdened with extra demands or too much stimulation. Uh, We don't actually know whether that's true. And we also worry about unintended negative consequences of completely banishing children from their screen, such as maybe feeling socially isolated or disconnected, anxious or depressed, which, of course, is not going to be helpful to their recovery. Right. And we're talking, is it specifically this study researchers were looking at Mm -hmm. children who was aged 8 to 16? That's right. And is it something about brain development specifically at that time as well, or it's any kind of brain development in those early years? Yeah, we we worry specifically at that stage of life that the brain is still developing and may be vulnerable to injury and just want to be uh, extra cautious that we're maximizing recovery in kids who get in a concussion during that sensitive period. And does it matter or is there a a big um, uh, change or is there, um, as far as the severity of the concussion, does that come into play? Um, In this study, we looked at kids who had a concussion uh, of any severity. uh, And, you know, it's all relatively mild in comparison to the kinds of traumatic brain injuries that leave kids in a coma or an extended period of hospitalization. Um, Typically, these are injuries that, uh, you know, following uh, a crash or or fall result in symptoms that can last uh, days or weeks, in some cases longer, Uh, don't always require a, a hospital visit. In this study, we recruited kids from across Canada who did visit an emergency department So the injury was severe enough to at least uh, have them go in and get checked out, uh, but generally didn't stay long at all in hospital. Okay. And did it look then as well, was it the the speed at which a person in this age group, again, the 8 to 16 group, Mm -hmm. if they didn't have a ton of screen time or if they had reduced screen time, was it that they healed faster or was it that they, they healed better? Yeah, so the main finding from this study is that children who had a moderate amount of screen time, so not too high, not too low, which translated to about three to six hours per day, um, had the optimal recovery. Uh, And we we measured how symptomatic they were uh, at several time points between the early days up to six months post-injury. So when we look at each of the time points, such as one month and three months and, and six months, uh, after injury, the kids with the moderate screen time had the had the best recovery in terms of the fewest symptoms at all those time points. Yeah, even compared to, were there children in the study who had no screen mm-hmm. time at all? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we refer to it as kind of a Goldilocks effect in the paper, where kids who had no screens at time at all and those who had a, a more extreme amount of screen time both had more symptoms, at least over the 30 days. 
following injury. After 30 days, all kids pretty well look the same regardless of their early screen time exposure. So screen time mattered a bit, uh, but really only in those first 30 days. And do the symptoms tend to vary a lot from person to person, whereas you get a concussion Mm -hmm. as far as recovery time and the symptoms that people experience? Very much so. Uh, You know, it's often said that no two concussions are alike. uh, And there really are a variety of symptoms that that children and adults as well can experience, ranging from uh, headaches and and dizziness and imbalance, uh, difficulty concentrating, sleep problems, fatigue, uh, forgetfulness, etc. So a kid may have a couple of those symptoms and uh, his peer or peer may may have a, a different sort of profile of symptoms. In this study, we were looking at a composite score of all those symptoms together. And is the takeaway then, like you said, after the 30 days when there wasn't a whole lot of difference as far as recoveries, that for parents hearing this, if your child Mm -hmm. is in that group and your child has a concussion, you don't need to put them in a dark room and take away all screens for the recovery to work. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So that's consistent, I think, with a, a growing recognition that getting kids gradually back to their activities as tolerated is really what's best for concussion and uh, sort of putting them in bedroom jail and taking away all their devices is not necessary and, and, and potentially harmful. Are there other activities, do you think, as well, or if we focus so much on screen time, but are there other yep. things that people may potentially do during the recovery that could hinder that recovery? Yeah, we're still trying to understand that full picture. There's been a lot of research done on, on physical activity and exercise. And again, there there was early concern that if kids exert themselves too much, um, that might delay their recovery. Um, and what we know now is that at least after uh, a couple of days following the injury, getting active is healthy. And, and in fact, exercise is often now prescribed as a therapy to speed up recovery from concussion. Are there, do you think times as well, or is it pretty basic or do you know if your child has a concussion? I mean, you may see the accident or you may see mm-hmm. see it happen, but there must be times when maybe somebody has a concussion and people don't really know right away. Yep, at, uh, it can be very apparent, uh, but a concussion can be relatively subtle as well. And I would just say, if in doubt, best to get the child uh, checked out by a physician. And, and, and get that done, I would imagine, as soon as possible after knowing that there was a potential? Yeah, th- that's right. It, it's not a matter of, you know, seconds or minutes count necessarily, but the, the medical doctor can be best positioned to figure out whether a concussion occurred or not when the kid is seen earlier rather than later. And does this kind of go to that we're learning more and more all the time about concussions, what they're doing to the brains, and the best way to recover from them? Yep, I'd like to think this study contributes to part of that developing story. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. Appreciate your time today. No problem. Thanks again for having me. We are talking a bit more about the results of the civic election and heading back to Surrey. And joining us is Harry Baines, a Surrey councillor, now Surrey councillor-elect with Surrey Connect. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. 
Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations on being elected. Um, I'm curious, when we look at what's been happening at Surrey Council, and certainly in these past few months, a lot of the councillors themselves referred to it as being uh, dysfunctional. There was a lot of frustration. What would you like to see at Council moving forward? Well, I think with five of us being in from Surrey Connect, and I've, I've looked at the other four councillors, I think we have a group we can work with. Um, one thing I want to see is City Hall open up for the residents again. I feel the frustration of a lot of Surrey residents who feel that City Hall just isn't open with them. It's not transparent with them, and they really don't know what's going on. And that's what we want to fix. We want to engage the community once again. Uh, the policing is obviously a very large issue, and there are still a ton of questions on how things are going to move forward now. What is the public safety minister going to say about potentially going back and going with the RCMP? Uh, how do you see that playing out and keeping in mind residents and the cost to residents? I anticipate the uh, the province being supportive of our of our position. It's it's the will of the Surrey residents. It's what it's our mandate. We've been we've run with it the entire way that we were going to keep the RCMP, and we're going to stand with that. And I believe the province will support us. Um, I recognize that there has been expenditures in the past, but I believe the cost savings moving forward over the next four, five, six, seven years uh, greatly outweighs any of the money that's been spent in the past. Are you able to tell residents of Surrey exactly what it's going to look like for them? Uh, even today, some have been calling into this radio station saying, I would just like somebody to tell me, what is it going to look like as far as my tax bill? How much is it going to cost us? No matter what happens, what are we looking at as far as increased potential costs for people in Surrey? Well, I think, I think the city of Surrey, uh, one of the first things we have to do with council and mayor is we have to step in and create the budget and go through the four readings of the budget. Uh, of the budget. And that's a process that's going to go from now till I believe it's mid-December. Uh, once we get into the financials and I take a closer look at things, I think I'll have a better answer. At this point, we're just getting started, so we have to look at everything. Uh, can you uh, commit to telling residents that, that at some point they will get a better idea on the costs and specifically what it's going to mean for people living in Surrey? Absolutely. I, I, we want to be very open and transparent with the residents of Surrey. We want to make sure that we take the budget out in the community centres and consult with the people of the city. We want to ask them and, and explain to them exactly what's in there so that they have the opportunity to understand exactly what's going into it. Um, on that note, with respect to property taxes, one thing you'll note from our, our campaign is we never campaigned on the promise of building massive infrastructure projects, like a, unnecessary projects, like a, like a stadium or anything like that, because we recognise that the next four years are going to be difficult. We're, we're headed into a recession. Uh, people are having difficulty paying their mortgage payments. People are skipping out on, on eating out and, and affording their groceries. So we recognize that the next four years are going to be difficult for the residents of Surrey uh, and the province generally. So we were very mindful of that when, when we looked at our platform and, and we tried to be as fiscally conservative as possible. The um, One of the members of the, the new Surrey Police Board was speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi on this station, and she said that, that the board would really like to sit down with council and talk to council about where they are in the process as far as getting jurisdictional status in the city of Surrey to talk about the, the money that has been spent, the collective agreements that are in place. Would the council at least be open to sitting down with the board and hearing their pitch as to why they shouldn't be stopped? Absolutely. I have no problem with hearing from them, but I think uh, we've, in, in the lead up to this campaign, we've asked multiple times for information. We've asked for, for more data on this, and, and it's never been received. So we, we are, I, I'm more than willing to hear from anybody, but I think our mandate was to keep the RCMP in Surrey, and we're going to stick with that. I'm curious your thoughts as well. One of your priorities that you've laid out as far as your role in council is to shorten development timelines. How do you go about doing that? 
Well, there's there's a number of different ways. I think the primary thing is we have to we have to look at different technologies that other cities are using. We've spoken with a number of IT providers, uh, develop, software developers who have spoken about different types of software. Just at, just at the very first instance, that will make a massive difference in how building timelines and building process can be streamlined from one department to the other department. That in itself, we feel, will save a substantial amount of time. The other thing, I mean, we're going to have to do a full review of staffing. Uh, look look at staffing levels. We're going to have to that's received to make sure that we have the right people with adequate training in the right places to make this process go faster from beginning to end. It's necessary. Do you anticipate then a, a big change as far as staffing levels and staff members at Surrey? Well, I think I think staffing levels definitely. I think staff members that are there are wonderful. I think they've done a great job, but I think they've been understaffed. I think they've 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 been looking for help for a number of years that just hasn't come, and I, I think it's time somebody helped them. Uh, when you talk about technologies then and, and permitting and such, are you looking at something as specific and not that it would be the same as Vancouver, but the Vancouver, which now has a majority council, they're doing a, or they proposed part of their platform was the three by three by three, uh, three days to approve home renovations, three weeks to approve single family homes and townhouses, three months to approve professionally designed multi-unit mid-rise projects where the existing zoning is already in place. Uh, can you commit would you be willing or are you looking to commit to to similar timelines uh, i would i would like to have a benchmark that we we do single family homes within 30 days and multi-family homes within 60 days i think that's our goal and that's what we need to work towards i've How spoken m- with a lot of i spoke with a lot of developers and they say that they could work with those timelines what do you think that would do for the price of housing or the costs well, there's things that we can't control on a macroeconomic level. We can't control interest rates. We can't control the things that are the general economy as a municipality. We just don't have control of that. So that those, those factors all go towards the demand. What we can do as a city, as a municipality, is we can look at the supply side. By shortening the timelines for a developer to get his projects from, from bare land to finished product that the market can buy, we're going to work to increase supply. And with that increased supply, we're hoping that we're, whatever the municipality can chip into towards increasing housing affordability, that's going to be where we do it. You're also listed uh, creating a plan to deal with traffic along major routes as one of your priorities. What does that look like? That looks like bringing in people, people much smarter than I am on this topic, and bringing them in to do a full analysis. Um, we, we, we need to look at a lot of areas of the city. There's, there's too many gridlocks, there's too much traffic in the city, and we need to bring in people who are experts at this to come in and look at the problem, create a plan, and then we as council and the city need to step forward and follow that plan. Are there anything or are there any potential or plans that are already in place, be it whether talking about SkyTrain or light rail, uh, that you think are good ideas that should move forward? Well, I think the SkyTrain that, that's that's going to Langley, I don't think we're going to we're going to touch that, but we do need to focus. I mean, in Surrey along the King George Boulevard uh, corridor there, there's there's too much traffic and one thing we're looking at is creating a rapid bus service that runs right the, the length of King George Highway kind of into South Surrey back and forth. Uh, I've I've heard of other parties, other slates talking about a SkyTrain uh, right up into South Surrey. And, I have nothing against the SkyTrain. I just don't think it's going to solve the problem we have today. That's a solution for a problem 20 years from now. The SkyTrain is going to take a long time. Whereas a rapid bus is a quick turnaround. We can create those lanes. We can get that bus going. We can get people moving today. And uh, Harry, one other point, and this is on a bit of a, a more fun note, I suppose. Uh, you also put as your priorities or one of them uh, as a zoning plan that includes an entertainment zone. Where would that be and what might that look like? I don't know where that's going to be. But what I, what I foresee is, I mean, I've grown up in Surrey for 30 years. Um, and, I, and I see a lot of people my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older. Nobody stays in Surrey. We live here, but we always go to Vancouver. We always go to other cities to do things. And I think it's not for, um, 
It's not because we don't want to stay in Surrey. It's because there's not a lot for, for people to do here. So I would like to see an entertainment zone where we have kind of entertainment facilities, maybe a theater or other venues within a centralized area, somewhere in the city where people can go and spend time. Where would even have the space, do you think, to, to be a place where that could be created? There's, there's lots of spaces in and around Surrey, and, and a lot of it will be looking at private lands. I mean, we'll, we'll look to see what, uh, what the development community wants, wants to do as well. I mean, part of this process is this is not us telling the residents what they're going to get. A lot of this is going to be engagement with the community to figure out where the best place is to put these venues is. All right. Harry, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this and what things could potentially look like going forward in Surrey. Again, congratulations on your win on election night, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. We are going to talk a little bit more now, though, about what's next when it comes to the park board with the ABC sweep in Vancouver of that board as well. And joining us to talk about that is Scott Jensen, an incoming ABC park board commissioner. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for making the time for me today. Well, congratulations on your win and for becoming a park board commissioner. Thank you very much. I I really appreciate the support I received across the city and from uh, uh, Vancouver voters. Uh, So this was a bit of an interesting one. As we know, it's the only park board in Canada. Originally, Ken Sim and the ABC, his uh, his platform was to abolish the park board. That changed and then ran a slate of candidates, uh, you being one of them. Uh, So as a park board commissioner, what will be the first priority? Well, our first priority is to do a full audit of the uh, finances and of the parks and recreational services in the city so that we can get a a good understanding moving forward as to what our priorities will be. Um, And that's really been something we've been communicating with voters uh, since uh, early August when we started campaigning. Uh, even just when I promoted the fact that you were coming on the show, uh, we got calls to our buzz line and I got email from people saying they want to know what this park board is going to do with Stanley Park. Do you have a plan for Stanley Park? We do have a plan for Stanley Park. Um, we're going to be working quickly to ensure Stanley Park is fully accessible to all park users. Uh, we're taking into uh, consideration that we are moving into the winter. And uh, although the weather outside is has been sunny for a long time, that's going to be changing. And so this is a good time for us to start removing some of the temporary barriers that are in place throughout Stanley Park. Um, with that, we are going to be uh, reopening access from Beach Avenue to vehicle traffic. Um, and uh, we're going to be working to deliver an engineered solution that will allow both a permanent bike lane and two full lanes of vehicle traffic. Um, we are fully committed to making Stanley Park fully accessible and usable for everyone. So what would that look like if we go back and if people remember what it looked like before? So you're saying there will there'll be the return of two full lanes of traffic. Is there space to do two full lanes of traffic and a bike lane that's not on the, the seawall portion of the park? Um, at, at the moment, uh, we're going to just be going to kind of that pre-pandemic Stanley Park configuration. So that is two lanes of traffic um, and the cycling portion where it's uh, divided would be around Stanley Park uh, beside the pedestrian uh, on top of the seawall. Um, but moving through the winter, we're going to look at areas where we can provide a uh, protected permanent uh, bike lane so that uh, cyclists who choose to use the interior bike route um, uh, will be able to have areas where they will have that protection. Now, during our campaign, we talked a lot to cyclists, and the the ongoing uh, message that we heard was that cycling up the the hill from uh, uh, the bottom portion of of the the roadway up 
to Prospect Point was an area of concern where they felt that was necessary to have a divided protected lane. And that's something that we're going to look with, uh, work with our parkour partners in ensuring that that's probably one of the areas that will be addressed uh, during the winter so that, again, it, that may mean that we uh, merge two lanes into one at that one portion. Um, so there'll be one lane there and, and one bike lane. At that area of the park, though, there is no parking lots that need to be accessed. There's no businesses that would be affected by that. And that's our main concern is to ensure that uh, parking is available for those users that, that need to access that park by car. Um, further, we want to make sure that all of the, the businesses within the park are accessible and that uh, as we move into the spring and summer, that um, residents and uh, tourists who visit Stanley Park will be accessing those areas through um, means if they wish to take a, a bus or take a car or if they wish to cycle but want to cycle with some safety. Right. So just to, to clarify, so will you be then restoring uh, parking as well as accessible parking that was lost in the current configuration? Correct. All right. Uh, I wanted to uh, talk to you. Uh, one other point on that. Uh, what about, uh, as I'm sure you know, there's an ongoing lawsuit and a complaint at the Human Rights Commission from people specifically about the accessible parking. Uh, has anything been done as far as do you think this will end that lawsuit? I can't speak to that, and uh, at, at this point, you know, because it is before the courts, we'll just uh, um, allow that process to happen as as it may happen. But we'll uh, we'll remain from commenting at, from that at this moment. Uh, the one of the other priorities of the ABC Park Board commissioners was allowing alcohol in all parks with proper facilities. What is that going to look like as far as alcohol in parks as well as on Vancouver beaches? So uh, we are going to be looking at creating a pilot project to uh, permit uh, alcohol, responsible consumption of alcohol um, at certain beaches. Again, when the pilot project was introduced for the parks, um, it was very uh, focused as to its scope. And, and that will be the same as we approach making this pilot project for our beaches. We want to make sure that uh, we're choosing the right locations where we can ensure that this uh, pilot project can be successful. Uh, so we're going to be working with our partners to find those those areas that it, this makes sense to uh, have as a pilot project for uh, safe, responsible consumption on our beaches. Uh, again, this is going to be a pilot project. Uh, it is not going to mean that every beach is going to be accessible for that. So we are expecting that Vancouverites will uh, remember that bylaws um, are, are there in place for uh, all users to access our beaches and be safe and, and enjoy our, our beautiful beaches. So um, as we start to roll out that pilot project, uh, uh, we will be communicating to, to residents where those areas are and, and, how, and uh, how they can properly uh, be responsible in consuming alcohol in those locations. Um, as per or as the um, as for the safe uh, consumption of alcohol in parks, um, we are going to be identifying those parks to the public. Uh, we are going to start uh, ensuring that our our parks have the the core services attention that they need to ensure that uh, you know garbage pickup is is happening that. Uh, uh, recycling uh, areas are available for uh, users and to ensure that our parks are being uh, kept in a safe, uh, clean uh, manner. 
Doesn't that already kind of happen, though, as far as there are already laws about, you know, public drunkenness and, and creating a disorder in a public place? I mean, as long as a park has a washroom facility and a garbage can and a recycling can, doesn't that kind of make it that, that it should just be allowed and let's move on with something that people are doing already anyway? Exactly. And, and you, know, you, you hit the nail on the head. This is, you know, people have been safely consuming alcohol in our, our parks for, you know, two years now. We're just going to be making that uh, permanent. And, and, you know, the city during their study showed that the uh, pilot project was an overwhelming success. So, you know, it's time for us to move forward and, and start addressing the other issues that our parks and, and community centres have. Uh, are you going to be looking at other things as well? I know on the list of things to do, it's, it talks a lot about making sure parks are safe and inclusive. Uh, I mean, there are still places, and, and the first one that comes to mind is a stretch of Maple Street between, uh, I think it's uh, McNichol and Ogden. Uh, parking went up there. It used to be a place where people could park. It, temporary, no parking signs went up there at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, to kind of space people out and to make sure the beaches and parks weren't crowded. It's some of the most accessible parking there is for people that want to go to Kitts Beach or Kitts Point. Are you going to be looking at things like that and perhaps bringing those parking spaces back? Exactly. And that's part of what our full audit is, is going to enlighten us with, is, is where are some of the concerns that, that have been identified throughout the city and, and how can we pragmatically solve these problems? Uh, you know, we are... are, are coming into this with our eyes wide open that, you know, we want to be problem solvers. We want to make our city more accessible. Um, and we want to make, you know, take some of the, the, the headache away from many of the people who access our, our beaches and our community centres. And when you talk as well, one of the other points being uh, placing a freeze on all park board fee increases. What specific fees are you talking about there? So those are field rentals and ice rentals. Um, the community centre associations that manage our services within the community centres, uh, they're still going to be managing their uh, their uh, programs in a way that, that makes fiscally, that are fiscally responsible for them. Uh, for us, we're ensuring that as uh, large user groups look to build their, um, their, their season plans for uh, using our, our, our fields for, for sports or our rinks, uh, for uh, other activities, uh, be it hockey, figure skating, um, or, or lessons, that they can they can plan those long term uh, investments, knowing that the fees are not going to be changed with a new park board coming in. All right. And uh, Scott, I just want to go back because I think I know we talked a lot about uh, Stanley Park and Beach Avenue, but that is certainly the one issue that we get the most calls and email about. Do you have a timeline when we might see the reverting back to what it was like pre-pandemic, both the Stanley Park, uh, two lanes of traffic, as well as that access to Beach Avenue? Um, I'm going to be speaking for myself here. We're, we're transitioning right now. We're, we're doing a lot of work um, already uh, meeting with our team. And we're looking at after our, our first meeting uh, with the park board, after we're sworn in, uh, to, to move forward with the removal of the temporary uh, barriers that are throughout Stanley Park. So you're, you're going to be looking at early November for the removal of all of those structures throughout Stanley Park. All right, Scott Jensen, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this and the uh, priorities for the new park board. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It was an absolute joy to be on this show. I listen to it every week. So thank you very much.
Well, you might remember a couple of weeks back, maybe a few weeks back now, Ben Dooley, who is a CKNW producer, the producer of this program, came on the show to talk about how his nan was about to celebrate her 100th birthday. And her dream was to have 100 birthday cards arrive at her home. Well, so many of you emailed and got in touch after that segment to find out how you could send Nan Dooley a card. That number was actually more than 100. And Ben is back with us after a whirlwind trip to Newfoundland to talk about how it played out. Hey, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Well, it's great to have you back. I know uh, had if you'd been given the choice, I think you would have chosen to stay on vacation for a lot longer. Uh, but tell us a bit. It's not every day you get to go to the birthday party for somebody who is turning 100. How did things play out? Oh, it was absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, Nan is in amazing shape. She uh, still has her memory. She she has a better memory th- than I do. And and her only complaint uh, about uh, her health is is uh, she has a, a bad hip and she can't uh, sit too long. She has to get up and walk around. Uh, and so for for a one hundred year old woman. Uh, I I would say that that's pretty good. That uh, is not bad. That's envious. I think a lot of people envious if that's uh, your only concern is a, is a sore hip. <laughs> uh, so when we talked before, uh, we put it out there because your nan wanted to get 100 birthday cards for her birthday. How many cards came in? Uh, so we counted up the cards uh, the day after uh, her birthday, and there were a grand total of uh, 700 and two cards that uh, had come in at that point. But in the week uh, that's gone by since her birthday, I would say that another 200, uh, probably even 300 cards ha- have come in. So I could, I can comfortably uh, say that she has definitely reached uh, a thousand cards at this point. Amazing. So 10 times what we were going for, what she was hoping for, thanks to everybody who sent in cards. That's amazing. Yeah, she, you know what, she was absolutely uh, thrilled when uh, when we were counting up the cards. Uh, every time another uh, hundred cards was counted, she had the biggest uh, smile on her face. She was absolutely thrilled that uh, so many people uh, wanted to send her a birthday card. And I understand there were some prominent figures who took the time to send her a card? Yeah, she uh, she received a card uh, from the mayor of Nanaimo, uh, Leonard Krogh, uh, sent her a card. Uh, she got a card uh, from our premier, uh, John Horgan, uh, and, and the standard cards as well from uh, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. And, and she did actually uh, get a, a card uh, from Queen Elizabeth, uh, who, who sadly... Uh, passed away but uh but that was i think that was uh pretty special uh for her too because she's she's probably one of the last canadians uh if not uh, the last uh canadian to receive a letter from the queen oh you're right so that if, my goodness is you're right it, definitely one of the last ones but you're right i don't know how many people other people turned 100 around the same time as her birthday but definitely one of those the final cards from the queen yeah, so, so that will be 
uh, certainly uh, special uh, for her and, uh, you know, the local uh, politician in uh, Newfoundland attended uh, her birthday and uh, read out, uh, uh, you know, the letters from, from all of the, uh, the special people that uh, sent her uh, a card for her birthday and, and so she was, she was very excited about all of that and very, very grateful to everybody that uh, that sent her a card. She, she made sure that uh, uh, she told me she wanted me to uh, thank every single person individually uh, who, who sent her a card because uh, she was just so thrilled, especially uh, people who uh, took the time to not just, uh, you know, sign their name, uh, but, but a lot of people actually took the time uh, to, you know, uh, write about how they heard about Nan Dooley and, and write something about me, which I think uh, she treasured uh, more than just the card itself. Oh, very, very nice. Ben, I'm not sure if you've shifted. Your sound has gone a little bit off. Oh, there, that's... Uh, is, is this better now? There we go. Yes, we've got you back. So I wanted to, you to thank everybody. So sorry, do you have to now thank 1,000 people for sending their cards? Or are we considering <laughs> that's what this is right now? <laughs> well, well I, I'm hoping that, that this will satisfy. Um, but yes, I, I do want to to thank uh, everybody who, who sent her a card. She was just uh, so thrilled about uh, the number of cards and the number of people uh, who took time to, to actually write an, a note to her. Uh, and and didn't just uh, you know sign their name, which would have been great, but uh, but she she was really thrilled about uh, people uh, actually you know writing writing something in the card too. Uh, you sent a photo of the post office in uh, the small town where your nan lives. I think you put it out on social media as well. It was a very small, unassuming, almost tool shed-like building, that the post office. Now, I know all of the cards went there and then had to be delivered. Somebody went and picked them up. Do you know, did it overwhelm the post office? Had they seen anything like this before? So, so actually, it, it's really funny. Um, so, in Sweet Bay, basically everybody is related to each other in some way or another. So the woman that uh, works in the post office is actually my dad's godmother. Uh, and so she was, you know, totally fine with uh, the sheer number of cards and was, and was very happy uh, to play a part in this. Uh, so she was, she was just, you know, happy to be, to be a part of it and, and glad that, that Nan Dooley not only got her wish, but uh, far surpassed it. <laughs> and I understand as well, anybody that was looking for a birthday card leading up to this, if you were in or around Sweet Bay or even the next town over, you were out of luck. You may have had to make your own. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. Um, my dad stopped uh, in the next town over in a town called uh, Clarenville. It's about forty-five minutes uh, from Sweet Bay, and he got talking to the the cashier there, and uh, he he told her that uh, he was in town for uh, his mother's one hundredth birthday, and and the woman there said, uh, "Well, you won't uh, find a card here because uh, there's a, there's a woman in town." Uh, who asked for a hundred birthday cards for her birthday, and we're all sold out now. Uh, and so he he couldn't find a, a card there, but did uh, did end up finding one for her.
<laughs> well, that is good. And it is so great that she ended up getting a thousand plus cards sent to her and people leaving little notes and such. What a great thing that everybody was able to make her special day even a little bit more special. Ben, thanks for sharing with us that update. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners uh, who helped uh, her, uh, her wish come true this year.